2 Samuel 15. After this, Absalom prepared a chariot and horses for himself and 50 men to run before him. Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. When any man had a suit which he should come to the king for judgment, Absalom called to him and said, What city are you from? He said, Your servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. Absalom said to him, Behold, your matters are good and right, but there is no man deputized by the king to hear you. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man who has a suit or cause might come to me, and I would do him justice. It was so that when any man came near to bow down to him, he stretched out his hand and took hold of him and kissed him. Absalom did this sort of thing to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of 40 years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to Yahweh in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I stayed at Geshur in Syria, saying, If Yahweh shall indeed bring me again to Jerusalem, then I will serve Yahweh. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men went with Absalom out of Jerusalem, who were invited, and went in their simplicity, and they didn't know anything. Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counsellor from his city, even from Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. The conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. A messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let's flee, or else none of us will escape from Absalom. Hurry to depart, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down evil on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. The king went out, and all his household went after him. The king left ten women who were concubines to keep the house. The king went out, and all the people after him, and they stayed in Beth Merhak. All his servants passed on beside him, all the Kerithites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, six hundred men who came after him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Return and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. Whereas you came but yesterday, should I today make you go up and down with us, since I go where I may? Return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. Ittai answered the king and said, As Yahweh lives and as my lord the king lives, Surely in what place my lord the king is, whether for death or for life, your servant will be there also. David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. Ittai the Gittite passed over, and all his men and all the little ones who were with him. All the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Behold, Zadok also came and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down God's Ark, and Abiathar went up until all the people finished passing out of the city. The king said to Zadok, 
carry God's ark back into the city. If I find favour in Yahweh's eyes, he will bring me again and show me both it and its habitation. But if he says, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king said also to Zadok the priest, Aren't you a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. Behold, I will stay at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Zadok therefore and Abiathar carried God's ark to Jerusalem again, and they stayed there. David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him each covered his head, and they went up, weeping as they went. Someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. When David had come to the top where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him with his tunic torn and earth on his head. David said to him, If you pass on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and tell Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so I will now be your servant, that you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Don't you have Zadok and Abiathar the priests there with you? Therefore, whatever you hear out of the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. Send to me everything that you shall hear by them. So Hushite, Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Well, <laughs> there's a lot going on in this chapter, and uh, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have been in this particular situation. Um, and I don't think when we casually read this chapter, we really get a sense of it properly either. Um, there's a lot going on. Um, Absalom is beginning his treachery here. He's going to take over the country. And he wants to kick his dad out, set himself up as king. But he actually, he, he crowns himself as king in Hebron, which according to Google Maps is 29.3 kilometers from Jerusalem in a straight line. But I guess if you were, you, you were traveling what, by whatever road, it would be a little longer. Um, and it was also somewhat mountainous. But, but basically, Absalom crowns himself king and then he heads for Jerusalem because he's going to get rid of David. So from the time he's crowned king, he's 30 kilometers away. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's what, 10 hours. 10 hours on foot or on donkey or on horse. We know that Absalom had a horse, chariots and horses. So they're, they're like not that far away. And at the very end of the chapter we just read, it says that as Hushai the Archite entered the city, Absalom was entering the city. So David had left Jerusalem. He was actually on the top of the Mount of Olives. He was only just a 20-minute walk out of Jerusalem, like a kilometre or one and a half or two kilometres out of Jerusalem, when he meets this guy, Hushai the Archite. They have this conversation, and we'll come back to it. Hushai the Archite, gets, he goes into the city of Jerusalem after his conversation with David, so he walks for 20 minutes after talking to David, and as he comes into Jerusalem, Absalom's coming into Jerusalem on the other side. So that's how far Absalom and David were apart, 20 minutes walking. And um, you can be sure right then in that moment that if Absalom had, had 
you know, jumped on his horse with a few thousand great fighters and said, we're getting him, and they pursued him down the road. They would have caught up with him in about half an hour, and they would have nailed him. So this is how close it all is. And, um, but there's, a, there's this guy called Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel has been one of David's close friends for a long time. And, and, um, but now he jumps sides, and he jumps onto Absalom's side. Now, um, Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Now, we've just been through the, um, you know, we, the last few chapters. We've talked about the sin with Bathsheba, how David killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and then he took Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, some people, in fact, pretty much everybody that I've read has said that Ahithophel had a grudge. <laughs> and he wanted to get David back because of what David did to his granddaughter, and so therefore he jumped sides. <laughs> I don't think that's correct. And uh, you might be wondering why, because that sounds like a pretty good reason right there, doesn't it? But I think um, what you've got to realize is that um, it's, it's, we don't know all the information. They're just basing that off just what seems obvious, but there's, there's clearly a lot more complexity to the story than that, and here's a bit more complexity. Whenever anyone became a king in ancient times, it was very, very common to kill all rivals to the throne and their wives and families. So when uh, Absalom became king, one of the first things he was going to do, it, now we have no reason to think he wouldn't because he wasn't principled like David. David was principled and when he became king, he didn't kill off the family of Saul, but he's like an exception. All through ancient times, that's not what people did. They would kill off all contenders to the throne so that they've got, like, in their mind, there's no threat. And so when Absalom becomes king, what's he going to do? He's going to kill all his brothers. And he's going to kill all his brothers' wives. He's going to kill all his brothers' families. Guess who's going to go? Solomon's going to go. Bathsheba's going to go. Ahithophel jumps sides to Absalom's side and if, he, if Absalom becomes king, Ahithophel knows his granddaughter and his great-grandson, Solomon, are in danger. Ahithophel's actually part of the family. He's actually technically semi-related. Like Ahithophel and David have descendants in common. David's son, Solomon, is Ahithophel's great-grandson. They have a descendant in common. And so I think it's more complicated than what all the commentators say. And I tend to think that Ahithophel was someone that seemed to always have good advice. So I think he's clearly thought about this whole situation and he's probably figured out in his own mind, Absalom's going to be the king. I want to be on the winning side. This is my conclusion. It's going to be something like that. And he probably thinks, if I'm on the winning side, I can save my family. Now, this is all guesswork, but it's just as good guesswork as the commentators. <laughs> In either case, what we've got here is someone that was a close, trusted friend of David's and has now turned his back on David and betrayed him and become um, someone who's on the enemy's side. And in fact, David, when he hears that Ahithophel has joined the enemy's side, he prays a prayer, and we just read it. He says, Lord, turn Ahithophel's advice into foolishness. And that's what the Lord will do. And we will read that in the next chapter, how the Lord does that. But in this chapter, as soon as David prays, that's where we meet Hushai the Archite. 
So this is another advisor. So you know, in kingdoms, you know, there were multiple advisors. It's the same today with, with governments. You know, there are various people who are consultants on various expert topics. You know, you can't expect the prime minister of a country like Australia to know everything about everything. And um, that was one of the interesting things about Donald Trump, was he, <laughs> he liked to just say things based off his own knowledge. And he knew a lot of stuff, but sometimes he was wrong or said the most funniest things. And I, um, I found some of his comments just to be quite entertaining. But typically, uh, presidents or prime ministers will have advisors and counselors, and it, it filters out some of the mistakes that they have. Some of the things they don't know get corrected, but also it, it's a chance to, to learn, to, like, you know, there's all sorts of things going on in the world today. So, uh, you know, there'll be an advisor, an expert on, you know, Arabian culture, you know, and if they've got to go to Arabia or whatever, they, they talk to their expert and they'll, how should I behave when I get there? These are all these experts. So governments have lots of them and King David had lots of them too. Ahithophel is a, a close, trusted advisor. Well, this Hushai the Archite, he's another one. And um, so when David meets Hushai the Archite on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, he says, you can be an answer to my prayer. You go in there and conf confuse the advice of Ahithophel and report to these two priests and they're gonna send word. So there's a bit of espionage set up here. David's left some people in the city they know where David's going, but no one else knows. They can send word of what's going on. David only narrowly escapes the city, and as we're gonna find out in the next chapter, the Lord helps him in a strange way to get away properly. David, when he hears about Ahithophel, he writes a psalm. Now there's lots of psalms, and some of the psalms are titled, and it says, you know, at the time when David was fleeing from Absalom, or whatever, and uh, we're not gonna cover those ones right now, but. One of the Psalms, Psalm 41, there's a part where he mentions Ahithophel. He doesn't mention Ahithophel by name, but he's talking about Ahithophel, and this is what he has to say. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die, and when will his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely. While his heart gathers slander, he goes out and then spreads it around. All my enemies whisper against me, and they imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who I shared bread with, has turned against me. So that last verse, Psalm 41 verse 9 in particular, is about Ahithophel. Even my close friend that I trusted, who I shared bread with, has turned against me. Well, that verse there, it is about Ahithophel you know, in context, but it's a prophetic uh, foreshadowing of Judas. And Jesus is at the table, He's at, it's at the Last Supper, he's sharing bread with Judas. Jesus even says, the one to whom I dip the bread and give, it's a, it's a picture of Judas. Judas was a close friend who turned his back on Jesus, just like Ahithophel turned his back on David. Do you have any close friends who ever turned their backs on you? Um, I doubt very much that anyone's experienced the level of betrayal that David and, and Jesus experienced with Ahithophel and Judas. But maybe you have, but it's, it's not common. But most of us have experienced little betrayals <laughs> and they hurt, especially uh, sometimes husbands and wives, you know, they, they do things in their own interest instead of in their family's interest or whatever. Those are betrayals by people that we wouldn't expect them from. And so they can be very, very hard to handle. 
and I want to um, just take a minute to take you through a thinking process about betrayal. There's uh, three ways, three things you can think. Number one, d did the person who betrayed you or you know, treated you in a way they shouldn't have, did they intend it? Because I think we'll find that in many cases, people didn't intend harm. Harm just came because they were careless, thoughtless, didn't think things through, or accidental circumstances, or, or you know, they weren't themselves at the time, or you know, there's various reasons. But if someone never intended it, we shouldn't take offense because we're taking offense where no offense is intended. If it, it, I've, I've often struggled to explain this point to people, but if there is no intent, then there is no offense. And uh, that's something that a lot of people don't seem to get their head around. They think the thing that happens is the thing that causes the offense. But no, the offense is only offensive if there's intent. Because if there's intent, it's a thing to actually cause offense. And if that's the case, then it's offensive. But if someone doesn't intend offense, then there literally isn't an offense. So don't be offended when there isn't an offense. So this is a thinking process I always go through. I think people do things to me, you know, they, they park in my spot. <laughs> well, why would I be offended about that? There's no intended offense. It, it, it could be annoying, but it's not offensive. But what, so that's the first step. The second step is what if the intent offense is intended? What if someone deliberately parks in your parking spot? What if someone deliberately breaks the lock on your school locker? You know, what if someone deliberately puts something yucky in your food at the restaurant? What if someone deliberately, it's deliberate, they intend to hurt you? So this is where I think a different way now. I think to myself, they want me to be offended. They want me to feel hurt. They want me to feel, you know, angry. Why should I let them get what they want? Shouldn't I forgive them? Shouldn't I not be bothered? Shouldn't I not be offended? Because um, that's what they're desiring. They're desiring for you to have all those angry feelings. Rather, have the feelings of Christ. <laughs> Rather, decide no, if, they, if an evil person wants you to be evil, why should you give in to an evil person to be like them? Shouldn't you say no, if I really want to, to, if I want to oppose what they're doing, why should I copy? Rather, I should do the opposite. So if their intent is to harm, I should not harm because that is true opposition. So that's how I think when it comes to that. Um, but finally, there's, there's a third level where it's, it's, it's a true betrayal. So you've got people who didn't intend offense, then you've got people who did intend offense, and, and often they're not your friends. Um, but finally, there's this third level of people where you are truly betrayed. They know, they, they, they knew what they were doing, but they still wanted to do it. They, they, they might have tried to cover it up. They didn't want you to be upset, but they still wanted to do what they wanted to do, and they knew you wouldn't approve, and it's, it's a genuine betrayal. And in this case, the attitude of Christ applies as well. Forgive. Uh, release. The Lord said, 
you know, do good to those who harm you. Bless those who persecute you. And this is where we take a step into Christ and we, we have to choose at this point not to be offended. This is the hardest point of all to do that. But if Christ could do it, we too can find grace for these things as well. Father, I ask you to help us not to take offence where there is no offence intended. Lord, help us not to take offence when people want us to be offended. Help us instead to, to uh, display an opposite spirit. And finally, Lord, in moments of betrayal, I pray for grace to forgive, grace to release, grace to bless and return. Help us, Lord, to be like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.